we ask you to bless this time as we come together. We ask you to guide, lead, show us what you would want us to see through this section of Scripture. And we ask the Holy Spirit to be upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Jeremiah chapter 3. God has been criticizing the Jewish people because of their forsaking of him, saying that judgment is coming to them. He's likened them unto harlots, turning away from God. And he's basically now beginning to say, come back to me, turn back to me, and I will forgive you. So this is where we're being left off, where we left off. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 19. But I said, how shall I put you among the children and give you a pleasant land and a goodly heritage in the host of nations? And I said, you shall call me father and shall not turn away from me. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. A voice was heard among the high places, weeping and supplications for the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way, and they have forgotten the Lord their God. Return, you backsliding children, and I will heal your backslidings. Behold, we come unto you, for you are the Lord our God. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of the mountains. Truly in the, in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. For shame hath devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks, their herds, their sons, their daughters. We lie down in our shame and our confusion covers us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth, even unto this day, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. If you will return, O Israel, says the Lord, return unto me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then shall you not be, shall you not remove, remove. and you shall swear the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, in, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless you, bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory." All right, I read this one because this is one of these chapters of places where the chapter break makes no sense. <laughs> All right, and this is what we say frequently. Remember that the chapters and verses are not inspired scripture. They were added in the mid-first uh, millennium to make it easier to find scripture. <laughs> and mostly they did a pretty good place, but something like this, they broke a thought up and instead of stopping at the right place, those, those first two verses of chapter 4 really belong in chapter 3 with the message that was being spoken. All right, so just keep that in mind when you're reading the scriptures. If you're in the middle of a topic, just keep reading until it stops, and then you can stop the, the reading. So in verse 19, he says, How shall I put you among the children and give you a blessed, pleasant land and a goodly heritage in the ho in, of the host of the nations? So God is saying, you are so evil, you are not repentant. How can I bless you amongst the heathen when you are just like the heathen? And that's what he's saying here. Yeah, I cannot bless you, even though I want to bless you because you are my children. I desire to bless you. If I blessed you, the heathen would not be desirous of turning and repenting either. And this is something that we have to understand. You know, we, when we walk with God, are not going to be blessed if we're walking in sin. Because God is not going to make us be blessed and say, look what God has done for me when I'm living like the world. 
he's going to say, no, you're, you're living like the world. You get what the world has. You're not going to be blessed. And this is what he's saying here. I can't give you a good heritage. I can't give you a good place if you're going to live in this sin. And he says, you shall call me my father and shall not turn away from me. So he's saying, I want you to turn. He's expecting us to turn. But then he's going right back. Surely as a wife treacherously departs from her husband, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, says the Lord. What is he saying here? You, you have repented. You've made it sound like you know what you're talking about. But as soon as you get what you want, you turn away again. The idea of a foxhole conversion. God, if you just saved me from this, this event... I will start going to church and I will honor you and I will give tithes and I will do what you want. And as soon as you're saved, you forget all about it. You don't go to church. Or maybe you go to church for a week or so and then you go, oh, I'm, I'm tired of this, I'm not going to do it, and you don't fulfill it. And this is what he's saying. You say the right things, you make it appear that you're turning, but you are just committing treacherous, treacherous acts and, and pulling away. And we need to be very careful of that in our own lives. When we turn back to God, it has to be wholeheartedly turning back to God, repenting, turning away from our sin, and turning toward God and letting Him take over our life. Does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, we're not going to be perfect, and God knows we're not going to be perfect. But the whole attitude when I'm making this repentance is, God, I truly repent. I don't want to do this anymore and turn back to him. And the only way that we can truly stay in that repentant frame is to start worshiping God, reading the Bible, spending all of our time with God, as much time as we can with him, and focused on him. And I'm, you know, I was listening, I don't remember it was the other day, but one of the pastors was saying, you know, if you truly start worshiping God, sin looks awful. And I understand that statement. The more I am in focus with God, the more I am in tune with God, the more I am praying and in his word, the worse sin looks to me. Because I'm starting to be, think and act like God. You know, just in process, and I begin to really see how awful sin is. And then Satan puts up this, hey, you want to do this sin? Yeah, no, no way. But when they were far away from God, we see the sin in its disguise and it looks good and it, and it entices. And we need to be so careful that we're close to God all the time. And this is so true because, you know, if I am looking at God and I am in love with God and I am in his presence, sin looks terrible, as it should. But when I am not real close to God, I get drawn toward toward things. I'll find myself doing and saying or thinking things that I shouldn't be, be drawn to because I'm not in the process of being close and worshiping God. And, you know, it's not easy worshiping God. It really is not easy worshiping God because the flesh doesn't like it. Because when we're worshiping God, we see ourselves the way God sees us, which is sinful. The flesh is going to be crucified and put away and the flesh does not want to be crucified and put away, so it's trying to draw us away from worshiping God. And we need to just plan on worshiping God, singing praise, reading the scriptures, you know, uh, praying, all the things that involved getting close to God. And that might mean sometimes not hanging out with your best friends if they're not godly friends. 
Now, I'm not saying totally lose those friends because otherwise we have nobody to evangelize. But, you know, we have to be very careful that our best friends, the ones we hang out with the most, are Christians that think godly ways with us. Because if our best friends are, is the world, they're going to draw us away. And it's very silly sometimes, you know, you'll find yourself, you know, just talking with these people and all of a sudden you realize, hold it, why are we talking about these things? These are not things I should be talking about. Coarse jesting, innuendos, all the things that go along with the world. You know, if we're not careful, all of that stuff can come into it. And, you know, I've been around another group of people at work sometimes and it's like they, these men enjoy their little little barbs and their little little innuendos and stuff and I know that I'm going to get sick of being, being around it because I don't, I'm not going to put up with it and somewhere I'm going to say something stop you know and when I'm around knock it off because I don't need to hear those kind of things I, I feel like I'm around junior high people with them junior high boys that's the mentality these guys have and most of them are older men and it's like grow up <laughs> But they're so worldly that they don't realize that you're junior high kids still in their, in their, in their thoughts and their actions. You know, but here he's saying, turn completely. Turn to him and depart from your treachery. Do not return back to your sin. And this is what he's challenging the people. Because Israel is up and down, up and down all these years, you know, the, righteous king they get they get a little good and then then turn right back in and go worse than they were before and this is the problem when we turn a back, turn don't turn fully to god when we fall back into sin we don't stop at where we left off we go deeper into sin than when we left off we see it so frequently when somebody's an alcoholic and they fall off the wagon and they were doing good it might even been for a long time they were doing good and they don't just start with one or two drinks. They go right back to wherever it was that they came out of in the first place or worse. With drugs, uh, sexual sins, every bit of it ends up going deeper into sin than we started. And Jesus said, you know, you're going to be, you know, the demons are cast off. He goes and gets seven more and you're worse off than, when you, than you were. So we want to be very careful. And that's not saying try to get, don't try to get better because you don't want to get worse. It's just because you're going to get worse even if you don't get better. You're going to continue to, to get more depraved. And so we see here that God is saying, turn to me. And in verse 20, uh, 21, he says, A voice was heard upon the high places weeping and supplications for the children of Israel, for they have perverted their way and have forgotten the Lord their God. And I was thinking about this. Who is the one that... Per, that weeped upon the high places. Prophets did this frequently. But in reality, in three different instances, Jesus is recorded weeping for Jerusalem from Mount Olivet. You know, and it says that he wept and lamented over the, over the people. Uh, he, he looked at their history and said, you've killed the prophets. And knowing that they killed the prophets, he says, now you're going to kill the son. He told the parable of the, the vineyard owner that rented out his land and didn't get it, and he sent servants and they killed him, and then he sent the son and they killed the son. Well, 
If you're not familiar with it, that's also an Old Testament parable. And so when Jesus told that to the Pharisees, the Pharisees knew exactly what he was talking about because it was more clear in the Old Testament that it was about the righteous leaders rejecting God. So when Jesus repeated that, that story, they're all looking at him, uh, you're, we know who we are, we know who you say you are. You know, they knew exactly, and this is why they hated that story from him. Because he's saying, I'm the son, the land is the father's, and you are the righteous, self-righteous leaders who are rejecting God. He knew, they knew who, who the players were in that, in that parable. And they hated him. But Jesus was saying, you're keeping people from God. You're putting up all these walls, all these rules, all these things. You're keeping people from seeking God, and you're not even seeking him yourselves. And this is the problem. Jesus wept. You've killed the prophets, and you're going to kill me. And here's the prophecy of this. They lament on the high places. Now, this is really kind of strange because when it's being spoken, what are the high places? The high places are where the temples are. But the temples aren't lamenting the sin because they're promoting the sin. So it's very clearly talking about the Messiah will weep over the people and hoping that at some point the people would weep and turn. And they're not going to see this. And it says, verse 22, return you backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. This is God's heart. Return. Doesn't matter where we are at, he does not care. He says, return to me. And this return is a strong return. It's repent. Repent and turn to me. And he says, I will heal your backsliding. How many times do people sit down and go, well, when I get my life all in order, then I'll turn to God. I'll, I just got to work out a few things, and then I will, I will turn to God. And God says, it doesn't work that way. Repent from it, and then I will give you the strength to get over and bring things into order. And it's been hard. I've done it myself at times. I'm going to do this my way. I'm going to, I'm going to fix my problems. I created them. I'm going to fix them. We need to be humble and say, God, I can't fix my problems. And when you really realize that I can't fix my own problems, and I humble myself before God and say, God, I need you, he's right there. All right, good. You've done just what I want you to do. Let's get you, let's get you out of this situation. And in my experience, it's wonderfully how fast God turns the things around. You sit there and you're trying to fix things, you're trying to fix things, and you finally give up, and God says, okay, we fixed it, and, and I'm not going to say instantly, but it is so quick that he turns things around for us and gives us peace and brings us back into his presence. And he says, behold, we come unto you, for you are the Lord our God. He wants to heal our backslidings, and he says, we turn to you, for you are our God. And it's a beautiful picture. If we could just fully understand the love that God has toward us. Jesus told the story about the, the prodigal son. Goes out, lives a riotous life, has lots of friends while he has money. 
And, you know, his brother accuses him of you know, living with harlots and all these things. And we don't know what he did, but we know that he didn't live, didn't live a good life. I'm sure he was at the bars buying, buying drinks for everybody, uh, buying, them, you know, buying them clothes. And whatever it took, he had money. And when you have money, you have lots of friends until you run out of money. And that was him. He had lots of friends until he ran out of money. And the whole point of the story was God was ready to take him back instantly, even though he had nothing to bring to him. And the story goes, he goes, I, I don't even want to be your child. I don't deserve to be your child. Just make me your, your servant. And God says, no, that's not happening. You are my child. We need to fully understand his love for us because most of our problems is, is in that we don't tr trust him to forgive. And we feel we have to do something to earn his forgiveness. God, I really messed up my life. When I get everything up, fixed up that I messed up, I'll come to you. And he's saying, no, just come. Come as you are. And I will fix you, is what God is saying. And we need to get to that place where we're going, God, I am going to trust you to fix me. And I've seen over and over in my lifetime and other people's lives as I've watched, people trying to fix their own problems because they don't trust the love of God and his forgiveness. Because we tend to judge God by our standards. Well, God, you know, I would never accept somebody that messed up their life this bad. So I know because I messed up my life so bad, you're not going to accept me because I would never accept me. And we put our thoughts, our pattern onto God. And I've seen it so many times. I go, people go, I just can't forgive myself. Why not? Well, because I'm really bad and I know that I meant to do these. Well, can God forgive you? Yeah, God can forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. That bothers me a lot because you're saying your standards are higher than God's. We need to get out of that standard and start realizing if we truly believe God will forgive us, then we must treat ourselves in the same, same standard because he's much higher. His standards are much higher than ours. So if he can forgive, he can accept, we must accept ourselves and those around us. And this is why it's so important to be able to say, get to know God and apply his love first and foremost to myself and then to others. Because many people find it easier to forgive other people than they do to forgive themselves. And I understand on one side, I know my motive. I know that I meant to do it or I, you know, I should have done other things and I know my motives and it's a little harder for me to forgive myself sometimes. But if I truly know God's love, and truly know who God is, then that love and forgiveness for, for myself should be there. And then that love and forgiveness flows out to others. And it's a critical thing for us because it is so easy to judge, judge myself to a higher standard. And sometimes people go the opposite way. They give themselves total freedom and, and judge everybody else. Either way is bad. <laughs> Either way is bad. I have to apply God's love and mercy to myself and to others in equal measure and not stingily you know because a lot of people will do it okay God I have to forgive all right give me the thimble out here and I'll start forgiving 
And God is saying, no, I want the big snow shovel. Matter of fact, I want the, I want the fork, I want the uh, bulldozer with a great big, you know, five-ton uh, bucket lo- you know, loader of forgiveness on these people. And we're going, well, God, all right, all right, I'll forgive that little area. I'll forgive that little area. And God says, no, just forgive. Does that mean we're to be uh, floor mats and allow people to just keep misusing us? No. But it also means we learn to forgive and learn to give grace. And that doesn't mean we let down our guards and just let them abuse us. But it also means that I think the best of people as much as possible unless they've definitely shown me that they're not trustworthy. All right? And this is something that's very important. How do I deal with people? Do I give them grace and mercy, the benefit of the doubt? And I've seen many people when they get saved have have to struggle with people that know them from the past and saying, well, I'm just waiting for you to be as mean as you were or as nasty as you were or as sinful as you were because I just know that this is all fake. And it's like, okay, you're telling me you don't think God has the power to change somebody's life. Now, I would take some of it, you know, a little bit, you know, if somebody has a history of stealing, I'm not going to give them the keys to the, to the, to the church and the combination to the safe. You know, just not going to do that until I know that, yes, this person has changed. All right? But that's just wisdom in the deal. But I'm also going to be fairly quick to say, hey, this person has changed. And we can see that they're, they've turned their life over to God and use a little discernment as well. It doesn't take long. If you're really walking with God, it doesn't take too long for you to know whether the Spirit of God is in somebody or not. And I've seen it over and over where you're, eh, I'm not seeing the Spirit. You know, you're, you're saying all the right things. You're doing all the right things. But I'm not sensing the Spirit of God flowing out of you. And, you know, there's certain people you just, you know, have you ever met somebody and you just know that God is in them and you know the Spirit is flowing out of them? And it doesn't matter if they do something wrong, you know that they are gods. And then there's other people you're going, ugh, I don't know about this person. They're just, I don't feel the spirit. And I'm not saying we go by feelings, but there's a certain discernment that goes along with knowing who the brothers are, knowing the spirit of somebody that comes out. Because the Holy Spirit in me is going to to gravitate toward the Holy Spirit in somebody else. And be able to say, this person is exuding God. You know, it doesn't matter what they say or do, I know that the Holy Spirit is in them. And that's not 100% of the time because there's some people that are so mixed up and, and tied up with the world that the Holy Spirit doesn't come out of them because he's not ruling in their life. And I'm not saying they're not saved, they're just, you know, it's like, okay. <laughs> I see it sometimes, I don't see it sometimes. And there's other people, I look, I don't see it at all. <laughs> but I'm not even saying they're not saved. Because they should, could be just so backslidden that at the point that I know them, you can't see it. When I had walked away from the church, people probably did not see God flowing out of me at that point because there was no God being poured into me. He was in me, but I was not filling that. I was not in the, into his word. I was not worshiping. There was nothing to flow out because there was nothing flowing in. And so we want to be careful of this. And it says, return and... For I am your God, verse 23, truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills and from the multitude of the mountains. Truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. So what is he saying here? You want to trust in those idols up on the hill? It's vain. 
you know, vain, vain to worship those idols. And I love it in other places where they say the idol has a mouth that can't speak, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, you know, and depending on which one you were, hands that don't move, feet that don't move, you know. And here he's saying the same thing. If you're worshiping an idol, following after an idol is a vain thing. There is no salvation outside of God. And that would include if we're making a God of ourselves. There are so many people that think they can do things and they put themselves up above God. You know, I'm going to get my life in order. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to accomplish all these things. And it's going to be me, me, me that accomplishes everything. And that's vain, vain hope as well. He says, our salvation is from the Lord God. We need to always remember that. God is our only hope. And, you know, I'm, I'm really hammering on this because I've been here. I have been here where I've tried to do things my way. God, I'm going to, you know, and I knew that God would forgive me. Don't get me wrong. I knew that God would forgive me, but because I've had these problems in the past where because I messed up my life, I found it hard to go to God and say, God, I need your help getting out of this problem that I created. This is what he's talking about. You've backslidden. You've gone on there. Quit trying to do it yourself. Humble yourself and come to before God. God has a plan for our life even when we mess it up. And when we take my favorite verse, Romans 8, 28, for all things work together for good. Now, this all things is everything that, except the things that I did to myself. No, all things work together for good. Well, God, you know, I really messed up my life, so it's all things but those, right? No, God says all things work together for good. So even when I totally mess it up myself, God already knew that it was going to happen and has the plan to fix what I messed up. And this is the beautiful picture of God. He can take the totally messed up, shattered life that we, get, that we create and recreate it. He doesn't even repair this, the life. He just recreates, does what he can do and puts it back together where all we could have done was, all right, God, I'm going to take this two by four and I'm going to nail boards on, both, you know, on, all, on all sides of it and I'm going to try to make it back to something strong and I'm going to use it as the support beam. Well, that support beam is going to be miserable because it was broken. God says, all right, here's your, here's your new four by four or eight by eight, whatever you make a support beam out of. You know, and he just says, you had a broken, cracked one that you tried to patch together. I'm giving you a new one because he can do it. We cannot bring it all back together again. We make it look good, you know, but we're having a castle that doesn't have strength. And God says, no, that's not going to work. I am going to be the one that fixes it. Why? Because he's God. He's Lord. He's master. And he says, I have high standards. I'm going to fix you to be able to walk the way I want you to walk that you can do what I want you to do. And he brings, fixes. Does that mean he takes away the consequences? No. But he takes a ruined life and puts it back together again so that it will shine out his glory. And it looks good because he says, 
Now, I haven't just repaired the house. I have made it brand new. And I've known some people who've done house remodels and, you know, they may have, you know, I know one guy, you know, he literally took the inside of the house completely apart. Floors, walls, everything. And rebuilt the entire house. The only thing standing were the support walls on the, you know, on the outside. And he literally replaced everything in the in, inside. That's what God does for us. He takes and says, oh, the inside of this house is totally messed up. Wipe out the whole inside, put a whole new inside in. Takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh that seeks after him. Takes out the desires for evil and puts in desires for him. We need to fully understand how much God loves us and how much he cares for us. And I don't think any of us, including myself, really truly know the, how much God loves us and how much he wants for us. Because he's infinite in his love. He's infinite in his care for us. And this is, goes to everything I say about God. No matter how much you think you know God, you don't know him. You think you know his love, you're just scratching the surface no matter how deep you think you know him. How big is God? We don't fully comprehend that because we're, we're bound by, by the dimensions of this world. And he far exceeds all those and whatever dimensions are beyond anything we know, he far exceeds those. And he encompasses everything. And his power is so much more than we think. And his love for us and his desire for us to be his cared for children is more than we can even imagine. God loves us in ways that we cannot even fathom. For those who have had a good family life, God loves you better than your good family. Those of you who have had a bad family life, he definitely loves you more than your, than your family loves you. Loved you. you know, go pick the, in, in that case, pick the most loving family you know of and God loves you more than that, lo that family was loved. He loves us so much that he wants to provide for us everything. And, you know, he promises to meet all our needs. But he's a good father who wants to give us our, our wants as well. As long as our wants aren't going to take us away from him, he's ready to give us the, our wants. You know, and as long as we'll honor him with those things, he'll give it to us. There have been several people that have been extremely wealthy that were good Christian men that have given God, you know, this seems strange, these were millionaires that gave God 90% of their income. Which means they made a lot of money. If they were giving God 90% and they were multi-millionaires, they just honored God with everything and just said, I'm going to honor you, God. Yeah. God, you said you could deal with 10%. I'll, we'll turn this around. I'll give you the 90 and I'll live on the 10. And they built Christian colleges and Christian camps and Christian schools and churches and everything else. And they, they, people would go, oh, you need, you, know, you need three or $4 million here. This is, this is my, part of my 90% that goes to God. It's yours. Build, build the college. Build the Christian school. You know, and they just gave it away. And I'm not saying that works for everybody, but these men so honored God that God blessed them in great ways. And they're just saying, God, I just, wanna, I just want to serve you. I just want, I'm good at making money. I just want my money to now serve you. And they just gave it away, gave it away, gave it away freely. 
What is our attitude toward God? How much do we trust God to challenge and say, God, I just want you, and not trust in ourselves? You know, Jeremiah later on is going to say, our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? One of the statements I hate to hear around churches is, well, God knows my heart. And usually what they're saying, well, I really wanted to do something right, so God knows that I wanted to do it right. Well, the sad thing is, God does know your heart. He knows that you are a wicked, deceitful person trying to manipulate him. So, you know, don't be saying, you know, trying to say that I was, I, my intentions were good. Not with that extent, not, not with that excuse anyway. Your intentions might have been good, but your heart is wicked. And this is the problem that we have. Yes, as a saved person, God is, is changing us. But Paul, at the end of his life, said, I am, the, I am the chiefest of sinners. He was starting to even begin to understand that even his heart was deceitful and wicked. And the longer I walk with God, the more I realize that deep down, my heart is terrible. And I know it. Even though God is getting control of a lot of my life and I'm you know, better than I used to be in many ways, and I love people as much as possible, and I'm kind to people as much as possible, I know deep down that my heart is still deceitfully wicked. You know, to prove it, what do you do if somebody comes up and punches you in the face? You know, most of us are going to ball up and get ready to fight. We may think twice about it, but, you know, our first instinct is, this person is going to pay. And it may be our last instinct. You know, I can't take them physically, but they are going to pay. I am going to find a way to get back. We need to be very careful because those kind of instances will really show who we are deep down. When somebody criticizes you, when you felt you don't deserve it, maybe you didn't deserve it, maybe you did, I don't know, it doesn't matter. They criticized you and you go, I didn't deserve this, how do you feel? Well, I'm going to make them pay. I'm going to, I'm going to show them somehow. And that evil heart starts popping up. Now, you may not even act on it, but that moment of anger and bitterness that rises up in you is showing what your heart is. Now, you might get it back down and spiritually say, okay, God, you know, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. But our heart is there ready to do what the heart does. And I've said this several times. We will all, our first instinct that we're going to have will be the, the flesh doesn't matter. The first instinct is going to be the flesh because that's what we are. How close we are with God and where we are with God will determine how fast his thoughts follow on that. Now, it can be so fast sometimes that we don't even realize we had a bad thought. You know, uh, you know that flash of, I want to get back, don't know I'm going to love this person, I'm going, to give, I'm going to be forgiven, it comes in so fast that you don't even cognizant of that fleshly thought. Most of us aren't that close to God that it's that fast. Usually, we have to consciously say, no, I'm going to do it God's way. But it can be when there's those times when we are really close to God and everything is going fine and we realize, I just want to love God. I want to do it His way. And this is what's so important. Living for Him. Living His way. Totally being cured of our backsliding by Him and His Holy Spirit in us. Verse 24 says, 
For shame has devoured the labor of our fathers from our youth, their flocks, their herds, their sons, and their daughters. We lie down in our shame. <laughs> you know, this is a pretty sad thing. He says, shame has devoured our labor. Confusion, all the stuff that shame brings. And he says, in all of this, it has is, it is taken the labor of our fathers, our inheritance, in other words. What should have been ours because our fathers earned it, it's taken, the shame has taken that. It has taken our, our, uh, our youth, uh, from our youth, their flocks, their herds, their sons, and their daughters. Shame is something that ends up covering for generations many times. You know, and this is, we see this over and over. When somebody lives a sinful lifestyle, that lifestyle usually flows down to their children. The, the town drunk has children that end up being the town drunk, who has grandchildren that end up being the grand, town drunk, who have great-grandchildren that end up being the town drunk or thief or, or promiscuous person or whatever the sin is in their lifestyle. It usually ends up being generational and this generation is partially being taught it's what their their lifestyle is and you know this is one thing I keep saying you know when we look at some of the kids in this area who are acting just like their parents who acting who act just like their parents you know you have to go back five six generations before you find any godly influence in their life and then we judge them because they're acting like what they grew up with and we need to be careful. I'm not saying that their sin is good. We don't want to say that. But we also have to say many of them don't know any better. They have never been trained to do anything different. You know, their lifestyle. They grew up around drugs. They grew up around promiscuity. They grew up around stealing, whatever it might be. That is their lifestyle. You know, mom did it. You know, hey, we needed something. She just went to the store and got it and then left without pain. She didn't get caught, she didn't go to jail, it's, it's okay, it's the way you live. And that's the way that they start thinking. And you keep doing that generation after generation after generation and there's nobody telling them that it's wrong, they don't know that it's wrong. You know, somebody who's caught up in alcohol or drugs or pr promiscuity, all they know is that's all that they know. And it's generation. Now, deep down in their mind, God, the conscience will be pricking at them. But it doesn't take long if you keep pushing the conscience down to sear that conscience so that people don't realize that it's wrong. And if you grow up with it, it's really even really hard to get to know it was wrong because it is all you've ever seen. We need to be careful to when we're dealing with people to understand that they're being devoured. Everything about them is being devoured by that sin, that action. And we need to be able to show them God's love, his mercy. Tell them that it's wrong. Yes, tell them it's wrong in love. You know, you, know, you really shouldn't be doing that. that. That is a sin against God rather than, you've got to stop doing that. That's evil. That's not going to win anybody. You know, but you know, God says that this is a sin and you need to be stopping it because it, it is against what God wants. And the, and the consequences of this is that you will end up going to hell because of the sin. And at the very least, suffering consequences. But we do it in love. 
and we do it in caring, not in anger and bitterness, you know, you know, because they hurt us or hurt somebody that we know, but we show them in a loving, kind way that they're going in the wrong direction. Nobody responds to legalism. We don't respond to legalism. If you're told you must do something, what's the first thing you want to do when you hear you must do something? In my case, it's tell me why. I want to know why I must do something. I'm not, I, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time, and I still don't like to be told you must do something. My, my flesh pops up, and it says, why? Now, I may go ahead and honor it, but my instincts are all saying, I don't understand why this is such a big deal, and you haven't told me why it's a big deal. Uh, you know, I could never live in an HOA community, because when they told me I can't do something, I'd be wanting to do it. Just because they said I couldn't. I'd be in trouble with them all the time. You can't paint, paint your house purple with pink polka dots. I don't want to paint purple with pink polka dot house, but because you told me I can, I'd want to paint it that way. You can't flag, you know, can't flow, you know, put up a Christian flag. I'd probably put up a Christian flag just because I was told you can't. You know, that's me. And I know I'm not that different from most people. The law shows us that we are sinners. Rules show us that we're sinners. And people go, well, what if people don't know God's laws? Well, they know man's laws, and they can't keep man's laws either. They know their group laws, and they can't keep their own group laws. God will come down to whatever level he shows needs to come down to to say, see, you can't be obedient anywhere. You know, here's my laws. You couldn't keep my laws. And he goes, and you didn't follow your government's laws. I'm really good about that. I'm really good about going over the speed limit. <laughs> you know, why? Because I think the speed limit's a recommended speed, mostly. <laughs> uh, you know, but we all know what it's like. We don't like to follow rules. It doesn't even have to be God's laws. And God will say, well, you didn't keep my laws. You didn't keep your nation's laws. You didn't keep your community laws. You, know, you, you didn't even keep your, group, your own rules. God, for my New Year's re resolution, I promise that I'm going to exercise every day for, for a half hour. And then within a month, we've violated our own law that we created for ourselves. And God will say, you didn't keep my laws, you didn't keep the government's laws, and you didn't even keep your own laws. Your own rules that you put together for yourself, you didn't even keep those. And he goes, you're guilty. Yeah. Without Jesus, we are guilty. With Jesus, Jesus will stand up and say, Father, yes, I paid for those sins. They are under the blood and will be forgiven. That is the good news for us as Christians. Jesus comes as our defense lawyer who's never lost a case and says, I already paid for that. They're, they're mine. They've accepted the sacrifice I made for them and we are forgiven. What a wonderful defense lawyer we have. Why? Because he's already paid the price. And he says, they accepted it, they're yours. Now, if they haven't accepted it, Except to Jesus, he doesn't stand up for them. He says, they rejected me. I'm not having anything to do with them. Satan makes the accusations. Then Father looks over to Jesus and said, nope, they never accepted it. Guilty. Even though their sin has been paid for, they didn't accept the payment. And they will be guilty. And this is the beauty of all of this. He says, in verse 25, he says, we lay down in our shame and our confusion covers us 
We have sinned against the Lord our God and our fathers from our youth until this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. We are constantly sinning. Constantly, he says, we lie down. You know, and this literally is a carnal type lying down. It's, it's a sexual type of thing. He goes, we are intimately related to our sins. And he says, in our shame and our confusion, our dishonor, uh, reproof, and we are clothed in our sin. This is the thing that will be happening for people when they stand before God. Those of us who are saved will stand in the righteousness of Christ, perfect garments. Those who are not saved will stand before God in filthy rags of their own righteousness, which does not fulfill the perfection of God. And God will look at them. It won't take him long to know who is going to come into the kingdom and who is not going to come into the kingdom. And for those of us who are saved, we will be standing, we will have been to the Bema seat, judgment seat of Christ. We will be at his right hand. We will be in judgment of the nations with him because we are the bride. And everybody else standing at the white throne judgment is guilty and will be standing in the rags of their righteousness. And they're going to think that they're pretty good because what is the excuse that everybody has? I hope that I'm good enough to go to heaven. When God looks at me and he sees all the good stuff that I've done, it should outweigh the bad and I'm going to go into heaven. And when they stand before him at the white throne judgment, they will look down and see that their righteousness is a bunch of stinky rags. And all of a sudden it will dawn on them, I don't have a leg to stand on. And they will know that they are guilty before the righteous God of the universe and say, all right, I kept telling everybody I was going to stand in my goodness. And when I got there, my goodness was going to get me in. And all of a sudden, they're going to realize I was wrong. Because it'll dawn on them. There will be no more, no more deception at that point. You will be seeing your righteousness for what it is. And I am glad that I'm not going to be judged for my righteousness. I'm glad I'm not going to be judged for my sins. But I am even very glad that I'm not going to be judged for my own righteousness because Christ has clothed me with his righteousness. And I get to go into heaven because of what Jesus did for me, not what I have done for myself. And this is going to be the good news. This is the news we have for people that we need to be giving to people. Jesus loved them so much, he died for their sins so that he could clothe them with his righteousness so that they could go to heaven because of what he did, not what they do. And unfortunately, so often we kind of mix this message up with, now, well, you're going to get to Jesus and you're going to do all the, you know, and then you get to start doing good things and earning, earning, your, earning your salvation. Now, we all know that that's not true, but many times that's the message that we portray. Come to Jesus, get saved, and then start doing good things. And oftentimes that's how we try to live. Uh, God, I know I'm saved by grace, but you know, I'm going I'm to do everything I can to deserve to keep this salvation. And I'm not saying we go out and sin or anything, but by the same token, why do we become obedient? It's not because I'm trying to earn his love and his forgiveness. It's because I love him. 
and I just want to show my love to him by being obedient because he's changing who I am and I just want to I just want to serve him not to you know get this and it's hard for us as human beings because so much of our family life our friends and uh, around us is conditional I like this person I'm going to do nice things to them if they do the right things for me and unfortunately we do these with our kids as well get your good grades get your get on the honor roll and we'll get you a bike we'll get you a trip we'll get you get whatever do this and you'll get this do this and you'll get that you know and it's not usually based in grace and mercy it's usually very conditional as long as you do the things I want you to do you're going to get the blessings that I have in store for you and I understand from a human point of view that I can't reward disobedience but everything about the way we live is so often based upon earning something which makes it very difficult for us when we're going before God and understanding that it's all by grace everything every bit of my life is by grace every good thing that I do is is by grace every good activity is by grace every good gift is by grace when I don't get what I deserve it's God's mercy on me because of the grace that he's given me in the first place you know it's all by grace and God deals with us through grace doesn't give us what we deserve because if we got what we would deserve we'd be in trouble I'd have been dead several times already because if I got what I deserve I would be punished greatly and so all of this comes down to says we have been sinning from the beginning and then it says in so we have all this thing and then it says in verse 4 if you will return O Israel says the Lord return unto me and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight then shall you not remove because if you will repent truly repent he, he says this several times if you will return if you will return unto me twice so he's being very clear and then he says and will put away your abominations and this literally means to put aside dispose of your abominations get them completely away not to, not that we can do it perfectly but we purpose to get it away I'm not I'm not intending to go back to it and this is something we have to be careful of so many times when we clean up our life there's a back of our mind that I got to keep these around just in case I fall because I'm probably going to fall anyway so I've got to make sure I make the provisions that to, to keep it from you know being too big a deal God I'm going to give up my alcohol but I'm going to put the the bottle of my favorite drink in the cabinet way in the back where I'm not going to see it but I'm going to have it there just in case well that just in case is going to happen God I'm going to give up my pornography but I'm going to keep the the passwords in my you know store to sign just in case so I don't have to start all over again God I'm, I'm you know whatever my drug of choice is I'm going to keep a little bag of it somewhere just in case and God I'm, I'm going out you know all the time I'm going to keep my little black book just in case you know the only problem with that is that just in case is going to happen and that's not true repentance he's saying return and put away burn the black book throw away the drugs pour the alcohol down the drain you know uh, destroy the destroy the passwords and the codes that are you know for those things make no provision 
to return. When we make a provision to return, we've given Satan a stronghold in our life because he's going to take advantage of that provision. He's going to say, oh, you, you made it so that it's going to be real easy to go back. And we might even have meant it when we said, I turn away. But God says, get rid of the abominations. Completely get rid of, dispose of, eliminate all of the abominations. Then you shall not be removed. I will not be taken out of my position that God has put me in because I have not made a provision for the falling back. And then the last part of this thought was, and you shall swear or make an oath, the Lord lives in truth, in judgment, and in righteousness, and the nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him shall they glory. I love this statement as I was reading, studying this. He goes, you shall swear that the Lord lives. I follow a risen God, a living God. Now that's the advantage of being a believer in the God of, of Jesus and the God of the Bible. He is a living God. He is an honest God that we can approach. No other religion has a God that's approachable. God, we're told we can come boldly before the throne of God because of the grace of Jesus. We are told that he loves us so much that he paid the sins so that we can enter into heaven. If you study all the other religions in the world, all of them boil down to, and I'm not saying they're all the same, but they all boil down to one of two uh, thoughts. Do more good than bad and you'll please the deity, which is the majority of them. Or there's no way to please the deity because there is no deity. You just keep reliving life over and over and over again until you finally do it right. That's got to be a sad way to live. It's a sad way to even think that I've got to do more good than bad. Because anybody who's trying to live that way doesn't understand how bad bad is and how, how little good is. But that's what it comes down to. God is saying he lives. And he lives in truth. God is true. He speaks truth. He is truth. He is reliable. He is established. We can trust God because he will never lie. And this is something that's so important. God will never lie. My whole life is based on the fact that God has not lied. Because if he's lied to me, how do I know where he's lied and where he's told the truth? How do I know I get to go to heaven because of what Jesus did if, he's not, if he could lie? Everything I believe is based on the fact that God is true and does not lie. I have repented. I have accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I am going to heaven because God said so. Plain and simple. I don't have to feel it. I don't have to know anything about it other than I know that God has not lied. I did my part. I repented of my sins and put my whole trust in him. And therefore, he's going to keep his part. And this is where we're at. How do I know that God created the heavens and the earth in seven days? Because he said so. Now, how else do I know it? Because the only other counteroffer is evolution, and evolution is scientific garbage. And the creation fits uh, the science out there better. Uh, 100%? I can't prove it 100%, but I know that the alternative is evolution, 
and evolution violates every scientific principle, violates every law of science, and is just illogical. So it is totally, the only other alternative is out the window, which leaves me, God is true. So I'm going to believe in God. Do we truly have this attitude that God is true and does not lie to us? How do we prove that? Start reading the Bible. When you get to something that just doesn't make sense to you and you're going, I don't know about this, remember one very important thing. God is true and he does not lie. If he's telling you something in the Bible, it is true. If I can't figure it out, it doesn't matter, it's still true. If I can't see how it can be true, it doesn't matter, it's still true. Because God is just a little bit smarter than me just a little bit smarter than you. So even if I can't figure it out or you can't figure it out, God is just a little bit smarter and he'll know how to make it come out and come to be true. And he knows how it will be true. And so we just need to learn to trust him completely. And it takes time. It takes a little bit of experience. It takes faith to say, God, I am fully trusting you. And it says he is, lives in judgment. God's judgments are in true and righteous altogether. And he lives in righteousness. You know, he, he is righteous. He is going to do what is right, what he says he's going to do. But I love this last part. And the nations shall bless themselves in him. This is kind of an interesting statement. I live an example that shows people that God is true and righteous and worthy of being followed, and the nations, the people around me, seems how like most of us aren't high enough to have nations being drawn, will be blessed in him because of what they see in us, and they turn around, and they shall, and in him shall they glory. When we stand up for God, people will turn to God and be blessed and lift up glory to God. What a beautiful thing that we have. It also shows the power of our testimony. We can turn nations. We can turn communities by being examples of God's love and righteousness. And don't believe me? Pick up any of the biographies in the, in the, in the church library and start reading how one person changes a community, a nation, by honoring God. And their light shines and people turn to God and are blessed because of one person deciding to obey God. What would happen if our entire church started obeying God and honoring him in every decision? There was a light so shining out there that people saw what's going on. We could have a revival turnaround in this, in this town, in this county, this state that would just light up and bring people to Christ and turn a nation, turn a community because they see God. And we are the ones that will show them God. They're not going to see God on their own. They see God through the light being raised up by his people, the light shining from his people. And the way we do that is we get into the word of God. We get into worshiping God. We get into living the way he wants us to live, not out of compulsion or, you know, 
being forced to, but because we want to. We want to serve him. And people know the difference. You know the difference when you see somebody who's doing something because they must and the person who does something because they want to. Now, if you've ever been around some of these work, work groups from uh, people doing uh, community service, they're doing as little as they possibly can because they don't want to do it. They are being forced to do it. You get somebody who wants to do it like it's supposed to be, and they're smiling, enjoying themselves, and going full out to do the best job they can. Why? Because they're working for God to honor him rather than for themselves. I love working for God. It's so much fun. And that may mean even at the prison, there's times when I'm just working for God, and it is a fun time. There's sometimes I'm there just because it's a job and I have to do it. The better days are when I'm there because I'm working for God and saying, God, I just want to lift you up and be an example today. And I'm not doing anything different than I did the day before. I just have a different mindset toward it. God, I'm working for you. I'm lifting you up. I want you to be honored. I want you to be glorified because you are the Lord, you are the master, and I want you to be exalted and working for God. What a difference. And this is the way we are supposed to be as Christians. Everything we do should be done as if unto God because that's who it is really to. So I'm out there weeding, weeding the property. I should be doing a good job and saying, God, I'm doing this for you. The king is, the king is here. The king is seeing. I'm working for the king. You know, not just as, a, well, I want everybody to come and see how nice this place looks because I went out there and weeded it. Wrong motive. I want these dishes to be washed the best that they possibly can because I want God to be glorified in what I do. I want these people to be taught the best that I can because I'm glorifying God. What is our motivation when we serve him? Are we looking to lift him up or just do the bare minimum to stay out of trouble? And we want to be careful about how we do because who is it that we're working for? The God of the universe or ourselves or somebody, or somebody lesser than God? And we want to keep these things in mind. Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we go about our day. Help us to live for you in all that we do. Help us to make godly decisions and choices and to seek you in all that we do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. 
Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.